Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Dr. Strangelove. Uh, Dr. Strangelove, the movie, is based on a book, and the book's title is called Red Alert. And Red Alert was written by uh, Peter George and was published in 1958. And the film adaptation, which is called... Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, came out in 1964 and was directed by Stanley Kubrick. Nice. Yeah. You weren't <laughs> expecting the extra sauce I put on that beginning, were you? No. Why did you emphasize the <laughs> I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I just felt like it, okay? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing the same thing for too long. <laughs> we're trying to throw people off their groove, I guess. Yeah. They're like, wait, is this cover to credits? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds so different. So, Red Alert, the book actually was originally published as um, Two Hours to Doom. And the author published under the pseudonym Peter Bryant, but his real name is Peter George. So if you're confused, or you might be like, why the different titles? There's like 17 different titles and many authors, so. Yeah, and also (laughs) the movie title is, yeah, I think still holds the record for longest title for best picture nominee ever wow at 13 words <laughs> so it's impressive it, yeah. it didn't win any oscars uh, but you know it still made its mark in its own way <laughs> yeah <laughs> and this is actually the second uh stanley kubrick film we're talking about we did discuss the shining yes uh about a year ago almost now uh so if you're interested in listening to that one you can check out that episode yes and this is actually a patron requested episode um, we've, we've been doing a lot of these lately just because we love hearing from listeners, um, hearing from our patrons, and our patron Tassie actually requested this episode. And I had no idea that Dr. Strangelove was based on a book, and I had actually never seen the movie, ever. Yeah. Um. So this was my first time watching the movie, which I know it's like super iconic and like a cult classic. But yeah, I had no idea it was based on a book, so this is such an interesting adaptation to talk about yeah i had seen the film once in college but i i don't think i really knew what to think of it at the time yeah and it's hard too because i mean this movie is highly revered it's considered one of the all-time best comedies one of the all-time just best movies yeah and it's tough to like watch a movie especially one that's like as odd and unique as this yeah and to kind of like understand how you feel about it personally yeah because that's a lot of pressure on your first it is you know oh my god this is supposed to be one of the best movies of all time yeah and a lot of pressure on the film uh to like be good and so like you know you're kind of like okay i'm ready for one of the best films of all time blow me away yeah and so it's like kind of i think it takes a couple viewings or at least some reflection to kind of like grasp how you feel about it at least it did for me definitely uh, yeah, and Kubrick in himself is just such a unique filmmaker. I, I really looked more into his work this time uh, than others, but, like, he really works in, like, every genre. Yeah. Like, each film from, like, sci-fi to war to horror to uh, satire like this to whatever the fuck Eyes Wide Shut is. <laughs> I mean, he does a lot of adaptations, though. Yeah, yeah, and there's that, too, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, something else I wanted to call out, uh, thanks to our patron, Tassie, because uh, she informed me of this. I didn't know, but uh, the title, the opening titles of um, Dr. Strangelove 
were created by a pretty prolific graphic designer. I think Tassie said her husband is a designer and type nerd. Uh, <laughs> and so he like really loves this kind of thing. And I really also love opening title sequences, but I, to my own shame, don't really know a ton about type designers or um, type opening title designers. Yeah. Uh, b- besides Paul Bass, who's kind of like the innovator of it, the original dude, uh, these title sequences were designed by Pablo Ferro. And it's interesting because his job actually more than anything was they worked on figuring out the imagery for the opening title shots. Really? Which is a B-52 uh, bomber refueling in midair. Mm-hmm. So these two planes connected by this line that's refueling the lower plane. And so they worked a lot on like getting that footage and editing that together. And actually the type, the the actual letters... Um, were kind of like the last thing they did and kind of quickly. Really? That's actually like a type style that this designer had been like doodling with and fucking around with for a while. At this point, he had like a really successful agency. Yeah. And so uh, Kubrick was like, listen, we need these titles. And at first he did them traditionally, but Kubrick was like, no, they're too distracting from the imagery. Mm. I really don't want to take away from this B-52. So he kind of designed this really big but very open type style that he was known for doodling in. And it went on to like basically define like almost his entire career. I was going to say, I've definitely seen that in other movies from Mm -hmm. the 60s and 70s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Men in Black is another movie that actually Pablo Ferro worked on. Oh, wow. That uses a similar like hand done kind of quirky style. Hmm. Uh, I'm like halfway through reading like a really in-depth article about this guy. Uh, so thank you so much, Tassie, for, uh, turning me on to his work. Uh, he's really amazing (laughs) and prolific in this field and I'm glad I know who he is now. Yeah. It's really cool to find out stuff about making a movie and all that goes into it. Yeah. Something as small and as simple as the title of the opening title credits. So yeah. And especially cause like he did the editing on that opening and then, did he edited a Clockwork Orange trailer later for uh, Kubrick? Like they had a friendship. Wow. That really propelled him into Hollywood and filmmaking in general. So just a really interesting career. Definitely. So let's talk about the story. Let's talk about what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the book and the movie and kind of their setup and their tone. So the book is interesting in that it's pretty much a straight political military type thriller. It sets up the action. Everything, you know, is happening. There's this threat of nuclear war. There's all these players. And it's pretty serious. And then you have the movie that has all of the same elements of the book and follows the plot almost exactly. But there's a shift in the tone. Yeah, and it's amazing because, I mean, everyone knows this film as a a satire. Yeah. Uh, Or a black comedy. A black comedy, yeah. And... Uh, but it's shocking that the story beats are so similar to the source material. Yeah. That, I mean, they're almost like plot point for plot point, the same story. Yeah, I was actually shocked same. Um, to see how similar they were because I knew that this movie is so um, comedic in many ways and iconic. And I was like, oh, I bet they change a lot. of. As I'm reading it, I'm like, I bet they change a lot of this. Yeah. And it was basically the same. And... I think it's really funny in reading about how Stanley Kubrick approached this film because he did start out writing 
like an actual serious thriller. Yeah, he had read the book, really loved it, and was like, oh, this would make such a good thriller. And so he sat down and started actually penning the script. But he was saying, like, he got partway through and he just realized that there was, like, first of all, just, like, this... There was an inherent comedy to what he was writing, like, a humor to it. This kind of, like, the oxymoronic idea of, like, nuclear war for the sake of peace. Yes. And, like, all the dialogue felt weird to, like you know, the, the the exposition of what was going on and like, there's like an earnestness to it, but still like an, an irony there. Yeah. And I think the irony was really jumping out at him. At least that's what I imagine. And he just kept finding those comedic moments and those black comedy moments in the script and then decided to kind of fully commit to making it more of a satire. Yeah. Because in the scene that pops out to me is maybe like, it's what I almost imagined Kubrick was writing when this dawned on him. And that's like the explanation of plan R. Yeah. Because it keeps going on and on. And there's all these like contingencies and like variables and like. How did this happen? Yeah. To the point where like it becomes funny just for how long it goes on for. And yeah. how like. So like. And how it, brilliant yet stupid it is. Yes. Yes. It's both of those things. It seems like they created the perfect fail-safe plan yes. when in reality it's the perfect plan to like start a war. Yeah. So in my head, that's the scene he was writing where it jumped out at him. And and I think for the audience, it kind of, because for the most part, for the opening of this movie, it is pretty straightforward, like not yeah. that funny. Yeah. There's a couple moments that are like humorous, but really it kind of escalates in humor as it goes. Definitely. And I think too, there. You know, we're talking about a time when this escalation of tensions between, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union was like so intense and crazy, but also it's like so ridiculous yeah, and like over nothing and like so dumb in so many ways. Like you have you like made three more weapons. I'm going to make seven more. You yeah. know, this like you designed this thing that's going to counteract my weapons. So I have to make a better weapon that gets past your defenses. And yeah. Like, and I think this movie really captures the idiocy that's going on and like shows yeah. that. And and to be fair too, there is something to the book as well that almost feels self-aware to how like absurd everything that's going on definitely is, you know, it's not as like on the surface comedic, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's there. I think how absurd all of this is. Yeah. So let's get into a little bit of the mm-hmm. plot. Let's explain Plan R. <laughs> what is Plan R? Well, it's what our story begins with, where a airbase in Texas, there is a um, a general there who's mm-hmm. in command, and the origins of what actually begins are a little fuzzy, but he initiates Plan R. Yes. And kind of, suddenly the base is locked down. Mm-hmm. No one's allowed in or out. Communis- communications are shut down. Yeah. And Plan R is specifically supposed to happen when um, there's an attack on U.S. soil, and it's a means of retaliation against Russia. Yeah. And they currently have a wing of bombers uh, near Russia And so Plan R essentially um, initiates them to fly into the enemy territory towards their X point, they're called, basically Mm -hmm. their their target, where all these planes are armed with nuclear warheads or hydrogen bombs. Yeah. And they're supposed to uh, drop them on their targets. Yeah. And a key point of Plan R is basically like Plan R is if all of this has already happened and like shit has already hit the fan. Yes. Like, things are crazy. This plan kind of 
um, already assumes that the president, Washington, all of those people have already been wiped out. So part of the plan is that, you know, the enemy could be infiltrating American soil already. So all communications are shut down in the base. All communications to the bombers that are, you know, carrying out this attack are also um, cut and they can only receive communication if there's like a specific code that's given to them. So basically they have like put blinders on Mm -hmm. and they're like, all right, we're going and like nothing can stop us except a very like specific minute thing. And I think it really highlights the, um, the paranoia of the time too, because the general tells the base if anyone shows up at the base, even if they look like American soldiers and they're dressed in our uniform and have our equipment and trucks like shoot them. Yeah. They're probably communists undercover. Yeah. And so all of these people, all the soldiers on the base, all the, you know, people on the planes that are flying these weapons at this point are assuming that America is fucked. Yeah. Like maybe all of their families are dead. Maybe there aren't even any American cities to go back to. They're kind of on this like last ditch, almost suicide mission Mm -hmm. to retaliate against Russia to what they're assuming is, you know, already like an attack. So it's interesting because in the book, when this first starts happening, we don't know if this is true or not. Yeah, it's kind of like very vague. And we do through the book, especially and through the movie to an extent, we kind of have um, a character that we're following that we're kind of seeing through the eyes of. In the book, his name is Howard. In the movie, his name is um, Mandrake. Mandrake. Uh, this is an annoying adaptation to talk about because literally every character name is changed. Completely. Yeah. Like the <laughs> characters are basically there in the same for the most part, but like the names are completely substituted for really absurd, ridiculous, uh, joke names, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Quentin in the book is the general who, um, starts Planar in the book or in the movie. He is a uh, general ripper. Yeah. So... I don't know if we're going to stick to one over the other. Probably movie as much as possible. Yeah, Ripper. I think that's what people are more familiar with anyway. But if we slip up, we'll try to correct it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Howard slash or Mandrake is kind of like, this is weird. Yeah. Like things seem odd. And in the film, he discovers a radio and realizes local radio stations are still transmitting and like yeah. everything seems fine. And he's like, if we were really under attack... We would have that broadcasting on all frequencies. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Mm -hmm. So the action of the story kind of is split into three sets, essentially, which is interesting to talk about in terms of like making a movie as well, because you have like three distinct locations and not a lot of like other places that you would need to shoot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, besides like all the plane footage that they needed to get um, for like the plane flying and everything. Like, yeah. you have the base where uh, General Ripper and Mandrake are, you know, camping out, basically. Mm-hmm. You have the plane of the Alabama Angel, which is flying to their target to bomb Russia. So that's like, an you know, the inside of a plane. And then you have uh, the Pentagon war room where, you know, all these decisions are being made of a, about what's going to happen. Yeah. A really interesting factoid about the uh, uh, plane set is that... The military, like, refused to help with the making of this movie at all after they read the script. Yeah. So Kubrick and the set designers had to create the B-52 bomber set 
based on one photo because like b52 bombers like the layout and design is like very like under um top secret top secret and so they had one photo from like an airplane magazine from like the uk or something (laughs) that they had to build the entire b52 set based on that one photo wow yeah (laughs) so it's kind of absurd but well also the air force at the beginning of the movie is like hey just so you know none of this is real okay bye (laughs) yeah this could totally never happen never we promise after we saw this movie we fixed everything (laughs) (laughs) but let's yeah yeah so the sets are really interesting we'll talk about the war room one as well but yeah the and the book is structured similarly every chapter jumps between one of those three locations. Which I think is smart, especially for this book, because it, you know, the original title, Two Hours to Doom, like, it takes place in the span of, like, two hours. Am I right in assuming the movie takes place over a longer period of time? I think it's roughly the same amount of time. Is it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was hard to tell, because at one point it seems like it goes to daytime, and I... I, Anyway, concerning uh, General Ripper... Yes. And... Mandrake after Mandrake finds the radio and starts to get suspicious he confronts Ripper Mm -hmm. and this is where we get an explanation as to what is going on and why the general has ordered this attack even though it's completely out of context whereas the plan's supposed to be used in case of attack and he's just using it because he fucking wants to yeah, and it quickly turns into like a hostage situation yeah. where he has a gun. He's not like directly pointing it at Mandrake, but like it's implied he'll shoot him mm-hmm. if he needs to. And he kind of lays out the entire scheme. And this is where we get our first big divergence between book and movie is the motivations of Ripper. Definitely. In the book, Quentin, who is the book's counterpart to Ripper, he has ordered this attack because he's kind of had this idea in his head for a long time that the only way to really beat Russia is to attack them first. But of course, America never wants to be the one to attack first. And he thinks that that's America's greatest weakness. Mm -hmm. And he feels that the weapons they have now on the planes that they have now will never be better. And if he calls this attack now, then the United States will kind of be forced to follow up with like a secondary attack. Because they, the planes can't be recalled um, and this attack can't be stopped. And he's also dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah. I'm dying, so it's now or never. And so the, fuck it, right? <laughs> the only other two officers who have the recall code are like on a hunting trip. So he's like, my time to shine, baby. <laughs> it is funny because like early on, especially in the book, we find out all these like different things that are supposed to be fit. Uh, fail safes and like protect something like this from happening. But like the solution was just to send two guys on a hunting trip. I know. And then everything's like, all right, can't stop it now. Yep. (laughs) The ultimate plan giving paid time off. (laughs) Yeah. So um, he's really thought of everything in the movie. Ripper is clearly more unhinged, super unhinged. And I love that. Like, one one of the scenes just ends with the hint of what his motivation is before he, like, expounds upon it later. Yeah. But he talks about the um, preserving the purity of their bodily fluids. I just want to read a quote. And this is from, um, like, the message that he sends to, like, the <laughs> Pentagon. He says, he goes on and on about, like, the attack and what he's done. Then at the end, he ends it with, God willing, we will prevail in peace and freedom from fear and in true health through the purity and essence of our natural 
fluids. God bless you all. <laughs> and then the the guy who's reading us is like, we're still trying to figure out what that last part means. <laughs> I love that so much. Our precious natural fluids. It's so great. And like, I actually think like Jack uh, Ripper goes on to explain later to Mandrake that um, he believes fluoride is a communist scheme yes. uh, to mind control uh, the American population through mm-hmm. fluoridated water. Sorry, yeah. I bumped my mic. Um, and this was, I mean, this is still. This is a real a conspiracy, conspiracy theory, like still. Yeah. But apparently like around the time this movie came out, like in the 60s, it was a very popular conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. And I think this rings extremely true currently the dangers of public officials and those in the military or with control over the military yeah believing absurd conspiracy theories mm-hmm. and how absolutely like dangerous that is like I, who could i be talking about <laughs> <laughs> who knows who knows but you know i really do believe that like people need to go through like mental and like psychological evaluations that are regularly in these positions of power because like there are these like crazy people out there who believe these ridiculous conspiracies and like they shouldn't be allowed to like order a nuclear strike yeah like you should have to pass some kind of test regularly not just once like every six months that's like hey are you still sane okay good all right you're great um (laughs) wait no you're you're reading up on these uh fluoridation like facebook groups maybe maybe you're gonna be demoted maybe we should not (laughs) entrust you with any kind of authority over nuclear weapons yeah uh but it is i mean kind of a really i think it's something that we kind of just roll our eyes at a lot right now yeah and I, I totally understand that response, but I, I also think this movie specifically is a good cautionary tale of like, yeah, it's kind of silly and like can be funny. Like there are a lot of funny points oh, in this it's movie. Hilarious. It's so funny, but also terrifying because yeah. it's so real. Yeah, it seems so ridiculous. Especially like his phrasing, like our precious bodily <laughs> fluids. Yeah. And also just everyone else's confusion as They're to like, like, what is he talking about? There's a great scene when he sits down with uh, Mandrake in his office and begins to explain yeah. the conspiracy theory. And um, Mandrake is just like, ha He's like so hunched up and uncomfortable. He's the epitome of someone like trapped in a conversation. Literally like, trapped. Unable to leave and like, oh my God, he's crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> Which yeah. by the way, P- Peter Sellers in this is so funny. Yeah. I P- just have to say. I mean, he plays, and I mean, I would have, I would have never known this without reading about it, but he plays three different roles in this film. He plays Mandrake, he plays the president, and he plays the... Uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yes. And actually, I had no idea that he was playing the other two roles. I thought he was only Mandrake until Ian said something like partway through the movie. Yeah. I had no idea. Like, I literally was like, why is Peter Sellers like top build in this movie when he's like kind of a minor role? I don't get it. Like, I literally thought that. Well, and apparently like, um... You know, the studio producing this film, like, really just wanted Peter Sellers in it because, like, he was he brought in the box office numbers. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And Kubrick was like, OK, fine, I'll give him like three roles. <laughs> and actually, he was supposed to play the role of um, Kong on the uh, on the plane, mm-hmm. um, the captain. Uh, but he was worried about pulling off like a Texan accent. And so he passed up on that role. Wow. So it was originally supposed to be four. 
and they went down to three. So speaking of the plane, so we go to our um, next set, basically, which is the plane called the Alabama Angel. Yes. On a mission of destruction. And we get this group of characters who are so inherently tragic because you know that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. And you know that they're going to bomb this Russian city and they're not really supposed to. And they're just like following orders. And But they're also like, they believe in it so strongly. Yeah, I thought this was one of them. And I love when, um, and, and specifically the book, I think, does the a really book. good job with yeah. this portion of the story. And I love when a story can just like talk about something or describe a scene or characters or something that's just like on the surface, very simplistic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they're soldiers and they're just executing Doing this what they're order. Told to do. But like the more you read into it and the more you read it, it just like brings up so many questions and feelings and thoughts and like the, you know, the inherent nature of like just kind of the blind trust in the military that you give your superiors. Yeah. And what can happen if that's like used for like, um, you know, malevolent intent. Yeah. And just kind of like, yeah, that that structure of um the hierarchy within the military and the idea of like it not being able to function smoothly without this chain of command and just this unquestioning following of orders but at the same time how dangerous that can be yeah and the passing off of morals too it's yeah. like i'm just following orders i'm not you know? responsible yeah. i'm not the one who said to do this so i'm just gonna do it i agree there's a lot of like gray area in there but i think you have a deep sympathy especially in the book for this group of characters on the plane, because, you know, they believe that America has been attacked and yeah. that it's their duty. It's, you know, their patriotic duty to retaliate and even their like their duty to like their families who may be dead. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, and you know, the book doesn't really like get in. No one's having this like huge moral quandary. No. And, like, there's no infighting among them about what to do. It's just like, it's a thing and we got to do it. Yeah. Um, but I think you as the reader are left with like a lot of interesting thoughts and questions as well surrounding it. Definitely. The book also spends a lot of time in the plane portions explaining how planes and bombs work, which I did not appreciate. <laughs> I'm here to tell you all that I don't like when people tell me how like planes and equipment and technology works. I literally like there's nothing more that makes me I, my eyes just glaze over is when they're like, actually, this spaceship, actually, this bomb, actually, this like mechanical device. I'm like, stop talking. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I, I feel similarly um, to an extent, but also like part of me reading this, like I don't almost mind it because I'm honestly just so in awe of the amount of research oh, that yeah. clearly went into this story and like into the planes and as everything as mundane as like the calculations done on like how the flight path is taken and wins and like <laughs> setting up the bombs and like the fuses and all these things and like I'm almost like I'm not even it doesn't matter what they're saying but like you can tell that it was like oh yeah thoroughly researched and I'm almost just like wow, I can't believe, I can't believe how many pages are written about this. Wow. Like, I'm not even like, I'm just like absorbing the amount of content. Like, See, I can acknowledge that it has its place and importance and that like 
I'm not saying that no one should ever write those things. I'm just saying that I personally hate them. No, and, and honestly, like, I'm surprised that, like, I'm more okay with it because, yeah. like, this seems like the kind of thing I'd be like, oh, just fucking go on, yeah. like, get on with it. But, like, I've noticed a similar thing with, like, Stephen King. Yeah. And his writing is, like, he'll write about someone's profession. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't go, like, into crazy detail, but he always goes into enough detail where I'm, like, I can... More t- than you would think he would. Yeah. And I'm, like, I can tell you actually, like, researched this and you actually know what this job is like. And it gives you the sense of, like, being there and what that's like. In yeah. the same sense that, like, you feel like what it would be like to be on this plane and like to know how to do all these duties and like what that entails and exactly and how to release a bomb um also interestingly on this plane they have this technology called the brain which um actually is sort of like an anti-missile device that redirects any missiles that are targeted towards the plane and it it kind of like fucks with their radar basically yeah um so this ends up being like an important plot point later on in the story where the russian missiles actually can't target these planes to stop them even because they have this technology that keeps the missiles from hitting the planes yeah but like there's kind of like different things that happen like you know new missiles that are fired you also like find out about missiles that aren't like radar targeting but they're just kind of like scatter shot you know yeah. from behind and it does add to the um kind of the action of the scenes because mm-hmm. once it's established how things work you know what i mean you're a little bit more like oh know what to expect yeah and kind of like what they'll have to do or what the problem they're facing is so i do think a lot of that groundwork being laid ahead of time even if it is boring does add to the suspense and action later. I agree. Um, in the film, we have some really great characters who play <laughs> um, the main um, people on the plane. We have the captain of the plane, uh, Captain Kong. Kong, yes. Who's played by Slim Pickens, who I was not familiar with at all. Slim Pickens. His name actually just came up for me today. I was watching a video on the movie Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah. And they mentioned his name in it. I'm like, wow, that's the second time I've heard that name recently. <laughs> Uh, he is kind of a Western star as far as I understand. And like the accent he talks in, in the movie, that like heavy Texan, that's how he talks just like day to day. We also have James Earl Jones's first movie appearance in this movie. Yeah. Which I actually didn't recognize him because he's so young. So young. Yeah. And I mean, you know, James Earl Jones, when I think of him, he's kind of a bigger guy, especially yeah. later on in his mm-hmm. life. So, like, him just being younger, he's much slimmer, too. Definitely. Uh, but, yeah, we kind of get this whole cast of uh, of kind of... Well, I mean, really, it, it's, it's mostly like Slim Pickens. Yeah. yeah, mostly Slim Pickens. <laughs> mostly Slim Pickens who stands out. Uh, and in the book, we kind of, like, learn the names and characters a bit of mm-hmm. the, the cast. But, yeah, they're basically on this mission. We see them setting up scrambling their radio with the three letter code yep they pass out there's a great scene in the movie where they pass out survival kits to them (laughs) i love this part so much honestly (laughs) slim pickens is like reading the contents to them of like this survival kit and they're like literally like going through it he's like okay you got like your gun ammunition you got like food rations medicine also, you have um, a Russian phrase book slash Bible miniature combination book. 
It's like a matchbook. Yeah. What is it? Like three tubes of it lipstick? It shows like one of the guys like flipping through it kind of like confused, like a Bible slash Russian phrase book. It's almost like very Wes Anderson-y, like yeah. the kind of prop humor. La- laying out all the props. Yeah. Three tubes of li- lipstick, three pairs of stockings. Prophylactics. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It's like one of those moments where like. You know, once again, like the comedy just almost like comes out it of builds. nowhere. Yeah, yeah, but it is building. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the Pentagon war room. Yes. Because first of all, let's just talk about the set. The set. Oh, my God. Is stunning. It's so gorgeous. It's this enormous circular table mm-hmm. with the big boards. <laughs> there's the big boards. There's this huge circular light that's casting this really like intense light yeah. So, yeah, the lighting in this movie is really interesting because yeah. it's very stark. And it's, dramatic. It's very dramatic. And I'm trying to think of other words to describe like <laughs> black and white, but it's yeah. very black and white. It's More super. black and white than you would think that it would be. <laughs> no color. Not even a hue in this. Uh, also, like, it's cool because like in the war room set, like there's no clearly defined like walls or like it kind of just turns to darkness as you go. Yeah. And you see these like weird directional lights that kind of would have like no purpose like it's very dramatic like it looks like you're on a stage well and you can see that there's like a ceiling and it's almost like this triangular type room and these beams up at the top but really everything else like you said really is in shadow so you can't tell where this room begins and ends where the entrances are it just sort of exists yeah and so it does kind of feel like it's just there yeah. I, ju- I just love it. And it's funny because it's like very dramatic and like beautifully designed. Yeah. But they also use it well for like comedic effects because you have like these characters shouting across this like enormous like table setup. Yeah. And at certain points. So this is at the point where uh, the one general. Um, Turgeson. Turgeson is explaining like all these like. Uh, fail safes and contingencies and things that were supposed to prevent this from happening but are actually making it worse. Yeah. And like the scene and explanation goes on for like quite a while. It and does. It, it goes on for a long and time. And at a couple points like the camera, the shot is just this really wide shot and the voices are very echoey and it just like enhances the vastness of this room. And the stupidness yeah. of the setup. <laughs> You're like, why does this this doesn't work? This clearly does not work for anyone. Like, why is this happening? And like Listening to Turgeson like explain all this to the president, like you're literally like, oh my god, we have like so little time. Why do you keep talking? Like they kept going on and on and on. And I think the absurdity is just in that idea. Like they have to explain all this. They're in this stupid circular room, and everyone's like, well, what? What do we do now? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And um, also Turgeson, we got a brief scene of him before going to the Pentagon where he has to leave his mistress. Yes. And so, and at one point he gets a call from her in, yeah, the, in at, the war room and he's like trying to talk. He's like, I told you to never call me on this line. The president needs me, baby. It's so ridiculous, but I love it. Uh, the guy who plays Turgeson, I read his name 50,000 times. I need to start printing off like the names of the actors. Yeah. He's so good. He I mean, is. he's excellent. He, he just re- plays that like stupid military man fast talking yeah he's very animated there's a scene it's so good and was totally on accident where he's talking and walking backwards Uh and he trips and falls he does like this somersault (laughs) roll awkwardly gets up never stops talking while doing it he actually fell during that take and Kubrick just assumed he did it on purpose (laughs) as one of his takes and like that's what 
made it to the film. It's so funny. When he's like chewing gum like the whole time, (laughs) like he's just stuffing like pieces of gum into his mouth. Um, And he's just so like macho, like hit him with all that, all that we got. And he's definitely of the mind like, listen, we can't recall the bombers because of this plan and how it's laid out. So we might as well like commit to this. Like they're already about to hit. Let's like send out more of our planes and like really hit them while their pants are down is what he says. (laughs) (laughs) And and this, I mean, line of thought is in the book as well. A little more serious. But there's uh, two different generals in the book that are kind of arguing with the president and presenting the case like, hey, we, we need to take this opportunity. Yeah, and, and the president, like, really considers it, but then decides, like, no, we can't fucking do this. Like, I can't be responsible for millions of deaths if we can prevent it. And so he decides to reach out to Russia and to engage a dialogue and explain what happened. And try to stop it. And try to prevent it. He calls in the Russian ambassador mm-hmm. into the war room. And, yeah, in in terms of, like, trying to, like, work with them to prevent this from happening at all. Yeah. There's also a great scene where uh, Turgeson, in the film, Turgeson and the ambassador get in this, like, kind of, like, fight, like, grapple. Where they're arguing that, like, oh, he had this camera. Oh, no, he planted it on me. And He'll see the big board. (laughs) The big board. The way Turgeson says the big board. I know. Is so funny. But we get this great line where the president, who's, like, genuinely, like, ashamed of them. He's like, gentlemen, this is the war room. There's no fighting in here. Yeah, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. (laughs) Like, one of those lines that, like can totally just go over your head as being funny. But like the moment you think about it, you're like, oh my God, that's so absurd and hilarious. Of course, we find out pretty soon that there's a reason why the president wants to work with the Russian government, at least in the book. And it's revealed to us in the movie by the Russian ambassador why they should try to stop this from happening is the doomsday device. Yes, this is a... um, a, a deterrent. Yes. Uh, like the ultimate nuclear deterrent mm-hmm. where if Russia were attacked or were on the brink of collapse, they could set off these nuclear uh, bombs that are in the Alms. Ural Mountains. Or yeah. Something? Yeah. That, um, and the blast would is like designed to just wipe out the shroud Earth. the world in radiation and literally kill everyone. Yeah. And they just hadn't announced that it was finished yet. But. So in the book, the only one who knows about it is the president and obviously the Russians as well. Um, so he kind of reveals this and is like, this is why we can't do this. And because the Russians have the power to set it off at any time. So if they feel like they're going to be decimated, they're like, well, we'll take the world with us. In the movie, nobody knows about this until the Russian amb- ambassador reveals it. And he also reveals that it's totally automated. So any attack on Russia will trigger it. So the human element is not there. Yeah. In the book, like it can be triggered by the Russian government, which like is an interesting thought too. Cause like, you know, he's saying like, if the um, head of Russia is like going to be overthrown or the country's going to collapse, like, He'll just set it off out of spite. Yeah. And he was like, and I love this example. He's like, Hitler, like, killed himself when he was going to get caught. Imagine if he had this. Or he had nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. He would have fucking done it. Exactly. They talked about, like, when when a government um, or power structure is on the brink of collapse, like, the initial response is destruction. 
Yeah. And that, like, whether it's self-destruction, like suicide, or mass destruction in this case, uh, nuclear warheads. But I really liked that thought because I'm like, yeah, no, that's true. And it kind of, like, really is terrifying. Well, and I love what's what Dr. Strangelove, who is introduced kind of around this time in the movie, says, which he's like, what's the point in having a doomsday machine if you don't tell anyone about it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was one of my one faults in the book, is I was like, well, why wouldn't they have told America about it? Because that's, like, the ultimate deterrent. Well, I guess, like, the president knowing was supposed to be enough. Like, the yeah. president didn't have to tell it, because, like, I imagine they assumed only the president would order a nuclear strike and he's not going to. But still. No, I agree. Like, I guess they would just, like, make everyone know that. Like, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I love Dr. Strangelove pointing this out because I'm like, yes, exactly. Like, why is it a secret? Yeah. <laughs> we also haven't talked about one of the best scenes in the whole movie, and that is where the president calls Dimitri. Yes. The, um, the Russian leader. The Russian leader, yeah. He's called two different things between the movie and book, but the, the, the leader of Russia. And this scene, once again, is just like, so realistic in a way but that's what but so funny like just tweaked enough where like he's trying to like calm down or like set up the bad news when yeah. telling the <laughs> leader of russia and it's implied that he's also drunk yeah the leader of russia so like that kind of adds to the scene um but like there's this awkward like chit chat at the beginning where he's like i'm fine yes i i agree it's great to be fine <laughs> And then he says, well, he's like, he went and did a silly thing. The general? <laughs> the general, yeah, Ripper. He's like, he went and did a silly thing. Yes. I love, too, when he's like, um, well, I'm not just calling to say hello. Well, of, of course I, I would call to say hello. I, I would love to say hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this, like, married kind of, like, bickering or yeah. dialogue that's so funny. It's where, hilarious. Where you couldn't, like almost see if it was the right person who was president calling like awkwardly trying to like soften the bad news yeah but like okay so here's the thing <laughs> <laughs> listen it's real small like you're gonna laugh you're gonna laugh at this <laughs> you know what in, in a day or two from now we're just gonna like laugh we're gonna look back on this and be like oh my god <laughs> can you believe that <laughs> yeah i don't like once again just like tweaked enough where it's so real but so funny uh I I just want to take like a moment, though, to talk about like the context of this book and movie, which I think Ian and I and I severely lack because we're in our late 20s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we did not grow up in this like time frame in this environment. We didn't grow up doing you know, nuclear drills. Yeah, we were born literally right after the Cold War, like officially ended. Yeah. So. After they stopped doing nuclear drills, but before they started doing school shooting drills. Yeah, we were born in that sweet spot. All we had was fire drills and tornado drills. That was the worst <laughs> thing we had to worry about in school was, was a fire. Some kids smoking in the wood shop and setting the school on fire. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I think this is like really hard to like even imagine what that like constant dread i mean i think we have a lot of dread currently different dread but it's different <laughs> uh the idea of like nuclear war and the world ending like in the blink of an eye essentially yeah is like hard to even imagine well and two like being part of like the countries that are directly in conflict you know what i mean like america and the soviet union basically literally 
completely opposed at any moment the Russians could possibly send a missile to your city. Yeah, and we were pulling in every other country into this like yeah. squabble where Russia's like, hey, what about communism? And we're like, hey, what about not communism? What about capitalism? <laughs> what about capitalism? <laughs> <laughs> this won't backfire later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and I mean, God, the Cold War went on for like, so fucking long too like this the threat of this the idea just looming and two like the governments being like obsessed with one-upping each other and you know this book came out in 58 and the movie in what 64 64 so in between this was like the cuban missile crisis like that huge escalation that happened in the early 60s so like you know, things were still at their really high boiling yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. They like, weren't, like, on the decline for no, a while. No, no. Like, this was really intense. And, like, um, the author actually was a member of the uh, Royal Air Force, so a British, the British Air Force, the RAF. And he was terrified of nuclear war. And he wrote some other books that concern the same topic. And then Stanley Kubrick as well was kind of obsessed with this idea and was reading a lot of books about it, which brought him to um, Peter George's book. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, even with the doomsday uh, deterrent idea, like everything, like, it seems so absurd. It does. Like a world ending nuclear whatever. But like everything else in this book is so real. And it really just is like, if no one has done it. Like, it easily could be done, it seems. Yeah. And just that idea is is terrifying and makes you want, like, everyone to get rid of all their nuclear weapons, like, immediately. Exactly. Uh, but, yeah, I, I do think, like, the context of this film when it came out. So, like, this satire about nuclear war coming out at this time. Yeah. Is, like, really interesting. Mm-hmm. That it was, like, that... I don't want to say edgy, but I mean, essentially, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's inherently a little lost on us. And I don't think we can fully appreciate what this book and movie is really about, what it's tapping into, because we don't know what that's like. No, no. But on the on the offhand or on the other hand, like going back to the um conspiracy theory angle. oh yeah like there's still stuff in here that's like so prevalent it's still relevant yeah absolutely yeah. um let's go back to the base let's get back to base <laughs> with ripper and mandrake uh so the u.s military has launched an attack on the base they need to capture ripper to get the three-digit code. Yeah, so they can recall the bombers and stop this attack. But of course, Ripper has set up the base to shoot anyone who approaches it, uh, U.S. military, um, or, or whether they look like the U.S. military, you know, or what. So uh, it is kind of a firefight outside of the space. And um, Ripper is like, you know, he says he's really sad about this. Like, he cares about these these boys. Yeah. The boys. <laughs> Um, and Mandrake's like just shocked that he's letting all these deaths and casualties happen. Yeah. And in fact, in the movie, Ripper like grabs this huge ass gun out of his golf bag and <laughs> is like, okay, Mandrake, feed me these, uh, feed me the belt, the, the belt. I don't know what these <laughs> words are. <laughs> I don't understand weapons. <laughs> we get a whole scene where Mandrake is like, I can't, I have like an injury of some sort in my leg. 
Uh, and, and so, you know, Ripper's shooting this enormous, ridiculous gun out the window. And we also get a scene after this where he, um, Mandrake is just trying to get him to talk more about. Yeah. Maybe get the information he needs out of him, how to stop it. Yeah. So he asks, like, when did you, you know, get, get wise to the, um, fluoride conspiracy? And Ripper explains that it was during a time of, um, sexual intercourse (laughs) when he felt, what was it, tired? Yeah. I forget his exact phrasing, but like filled, emptiness. filled with a sense of emptiness. And he knew immediately that the Russians and the fluoride in the water were like doing this to him. Yeah, they're fucking with his sperm. They're f- yes. <laughs> uh, and this gets to, besides nuclear war, perhaps like the biggest theme of this movie. Definitely. And maybe I shouldn't even say theme, but um, motif or like visual, recurring visual imagery. And that is of um, dicks. Yeah. And sex in general. Sex and uh, yeah, just um, mostly dicks. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you talk about military and you talk about this aggressive um, warlike mentality, you almost inherently go towards dicks because war for most of our, you know, human existence has been like male driven. Yeah. And it's been a place where females have been excluded, especially from positions of authority. So, you know, you have like this literal like dick contest between the U.S. and Russia, which is the Cold War being like, no, my dick is bigger. No, my dick is bigger. (laughs) Actually, I can slap you across the face with my dick. (laughs) Like it just keeps going. Um, So I think in kind of, you know, emphasizing this in the movie, it makes sense how war is kind of used as like a stand in for sex. I mean, like sex is power. Power is sex. Well, and also the idea, especially between the Cold War, because like it's almost this like teasing Will they, won't they, like, yeah. kind of this, like, sexual, like, tension yeah. between everyone. It's like in a movie when, like, two characters are really antagonistic towards each other. And you're like, oh, my God, would you just fuck already? <laughs> and that's, like, this this movie, this situation where, like, you just want, like, them to fucking nuke each other already. Like, yeah. they're so anxious, too. They totally want to. They're acting like they don't. They're trying to impress the other. It's like an elaborate mating dance. Yeah. And and also, like, um, emphasizing the idea that, like, it's a lot of men who um, are sexually not confident. Yes. You know, Ripper, the fluoride idea coming about when, like, probably he lost his erection. Yeah, he wasn't able sex. to perform. And he's like, why would this happen? Yeah. And even the uh, Mandrake line where he's explaining, I can't feed the belt into your gun because of an injury. He's like, it's almost like him explaining why he, like, can't perform, can't perform or something. Mm-hmm. The discussion between the president and uh, Dimitri is, like, kind of an old married couple, like, squabbling. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the, the the huge gun rippers shooting. And then, of course, at the very end with the nuke and um, Kong riding it. It yeah. looks like just a big, a massive dick. Yep. Uh, there's, like, so much of this imagery throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and... This isn't new for Kubrick, or I shouldn't say it's not new, but it comes... It's not unique for it, this. He does it yeah, a lot of his movies. Yeah, he does it later on. I don't know before this movie. This might have been, like, kind of the first of this, but mm-hmm. uh, it certainly comes again in other films of his, and I don't think nearly... In those other films, I'm like, uh, this just seems so, like, 
forced or like not subtle, unnecessary, not subtle. But I think with this movie, I mean, first of all, like we're talking about this satire of a film. And I think that's why it works. Yeah. Is because it's poking fun at the inherent like, you know, dick showing off in the U.S. military. Yeah. And not only that, but like. It, it feels like it fits thematically with like this, like the tension of the war about to happen and like it being yeah. sexual tension and like, you know, the explosion that you're waiting for at the end <laughs> and like everyone kind of wants it to happen. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I just think it fits really well thematically more than any of his other films, which is why I'm like, I, I actually really like this aspect of the film. I agree. I think it works really well. So the general... Ripper slash Quentin kills himself at this point because he knows he's the only one who has the code. Yeah, and and the the military force defending the base kind of like um, uh, gives up, you know. And so he's like in the movie, he's like, I don't think I could do well under torture, <laughs> so I'm gonna just go to the bathroom real quick. And yeah, he shoots himself. And in the book, it's like kind of his plan all along to kill himself. He's already dying anyway, so this is sort of like what he wants to do. Yeah, yeah. So now they seem to be completely fucked. Uh, Howard slash uh, Mandrake um, is like trying to, you know, think back to their conversation. Is there something that was said? And he notices a notepad that Ripper had been scribbling in and he wrote peace on earth multiple times all over it. Or purity of essence. Purity of essence. <laughs> I, I was that actually written on yes. I totally missed that. It was in the it's in the movie on the sheet. It's That's like purity so of funny. essence, peace on earth. <laughs> yeah. Um General Quentin slash Ripper, who had the perfect idea, flawless, except he couldn't help himself from doodling the initials of the code in his notepad. Yeah. <laughs> his one flaw, the doodling. Bo- the book kind of tries to write it off as like, oh, like, when we doodle, we're really tapping into our subconscious. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, mm, All right, whatever. Whatever moves the plot along, <laughs> I guess. But they, you know, uh, Mandrake kind of figures that this is the code. It's going to be P-O-E or some combination of these letters. And so he, in the book, he actually has this moment where he's like, wait, should I tell someone about this? Because, you know, the general has just spent all this time trying to convince him that what he's doing is right and this is the perfect plan. So he kind of is like, wait, well, should I follow what the general was trying to do and let this happen? Maybe it is the best thing. <laughs> and like the like the seconds or are like counting by. down. I know. And he's like standing at the window and he's like, hmm... But then he comes to his big epiphany, which is killing is wrong. Murder is bad. (laughs) And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to let all this, these millions of people die for no reason. Yeah. So he ends up calling the president and giving him this code, which is able to recall some of the bombers. In the movie, he has a little more trouble making contact with the president. Poor Mandrake uh, gets arrested by one of the invading commanders to the base and finally convinces him to let him make a call to the president. But he has to call like on a payphone because the other phones are out. Yeah, he has to try to make a collect call and he can't. <laughs> and it's just like a whole ridiculous ordeal. He's 55 cents short. <laughs> Which there is like, I can almost like... I wonder if the idea came from the book because, like, at one point when Mandrake calls, um, 
I think the the one general is like, do you want me to transfer him to your line, president? And he's yeah. like, no, I'll take the receiver. And in his head, he's like, calls have been known to get dropped in transfer. And like, it literally means the world right now. Exactly. <laughs> and just the idea of like the the world depending on one call getting through. Exactly. Uh, but he, he gets the call through and they are able to use the code correctly and contact all of the planes in the air Except, uh, except for maybe one. Mm-hmm. The Alabama Angel, our heroes on the plane, have been hit and partially damaged by a missile. So yeah. it didn't directly hit them, but they have, you know, received damage from it. In the book, they get hit like three or four times. Well, and it's shocking because that first missile hit, the way the book is describing it, it was like the missile hit, like the two engines on, on the left side were damaged, like... The fuselage was blah, blah, blah. Um, these three guys were dead immediately on impact. Yeah. Like, it just, like, quickly writes off, like, three characters, which, like, I think was, like, really effective. Because, I yeah. mean, it just really gets to, like, how quickly that shit can, can happen. Down. Yeah. yeah. They're mm-hmm. just, like, gone in one second. And this continues to happen as they make their way into Russian territory. Like, they suffer more casualties. They suffer more damage to this plane. But this is, like, the little engine that could, that keeps being like, all right, we got this, though. We're going to drop the bomb. We're going to do <laughs> yeah. it. We're going to do it for all our all our people back home who are counting on us, um, which is part of that tragicness of the story, is that they're, like, so determined to, like, do this and to kill themselves doing this. Um, but it's so futile. Yeah, it, it is this kind of it's so ironic in terms of like they're trying to like either save the U.S. or retaliate for the U.S. And literally their actions are going to like doom it in the rest of the world. Yeah. And it's like really terrible because they're like giving their lives for this. And you like almost want to root for them. Yeah. Because you like feel for them and like you kind of like them. Uh, and I, I don't know. It almost feels like almost a commentary on like that kind of story too. rooting for the underdog. Yeah. Or just like rooting for characters in war situations. Like you are rooting for them, even if like their mission was as they think it is like, you're still rooting for them to kill millions of people. Yeah. And it kind of like really makes you reflect on like just that idea in general. Like it is subverted in a way. Cause like, Oh no, they're actually going to kill like the U S too. But it's like, would we be happy about this if they weren't? If they yeah, were just going like to retaliate? Yeah, like every scene in a war movie when they're like, all right, we just got to drop this bomb or we just have to like take out this base. You're like, well, how many people are they like killing with this? Like, you know, you don't think about it. We're too sensitive for war <laughs> is what we're saying. <laughs> I do like in the movie, though, when they're talking about the plane's chances of getting through. And you can see General Turgeson like kind of following this same rhetoric where he's getting caught up in the idea of this underdog plane and like American spirit. And he's like, yeah, the planes are like built so well. And like, yeah, it has a flying chance. And he literally goes vroom, vroom and like puts his arms out like a plane flying. And he's like, yeah. And and the president's like, what I'm saying though, is does it have a chance of like getting through? And he's like, you bet your ass. I mean, oh. (laughs) Just the dawning. I mean, like it's so, I read one review for this movie where it's like, he overacts so much, but which is like almost always like never do that. But yeah. like he makes it work so well. He's just like so earnest in like everything he's saying. Yeah. That, that actor does such an amazing job with that performance. 
Uh, yeah, so the the plane in the book is like it's really shot to hell. Yeah, the cat the the pilot the captain mm-hmm. has like shrapnel in his back and he's like just slowly bleeding to death. Yeah, I had a note in my when I take notes when I'm reading the book. I wrote uh, the captain has someone like stand near him to like spot him in case he starts dying faster. <laughs> He's like, I need someone to fly the plane if I literally just can't handle it anymore. He's like, hey, stand next to me. Yeah, I mean, by the end, he can like hardly move his limbs. Yeah, he's like, I have to just push push one button. And he's like, I can't do it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like they just get shot to hell and they're approaching their target. In the movie, uh, there's an issue with the bomb doors not opening. Yeah. And so Kong has to go down. He has to straddle the missile or yeah. straddle the bomb as he like rewires uh, the hatch to open. And so when he does succeed at opening it in time and the bomb drops, he is riding it all the way riding down, riding it the whole way down. It's like flapping so his cowboy hat over the top, but like so funny that it's he's such an just iconic like, scene. It is. And he's just like so elated. He's like. I mean, he's going to be incinerated. He's killed. You know, it's just yeah. like so Ridiculous. crazy. But yeah, so great. Um, There's this subplot in the book where they know that the Alabama Angel is probably going to hit its target at this point. And the president is negotiating with the Russian leader. And the Russian leader is basically like, I mean, if this target hits, like we will retaliate against you. And of course, the president is trying to stop all out war. And so he's like, well, what if we give you an American city that you are free to bomb in retaliation. And then we won't attack further. Like if we give you one city, cause like if one, your one city is destroyed, mm-hmm. you can have one of ours. And he's like, you can have Atlantic city. <laughs> <laughs> I offer Atlantic city as tribute. He's like, nobody cares about Atlantic city. <laughs> it's like, would anyone even notice if it we was gone? We won't miss it. <laughs> And this is I'm sorry to anyone who lives in Atlantic (laughs) City. (laughs) It is. I mean, like, I could easily see him saying Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like a random, like, mid-size That actually would have been so funny if it was Pittsburgh. I would have loved that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but, like, this is for me where the book got its most, like, absurdist. Yeah. But, like, It is absurd. It is absurd, yeah. But, like. You can still envision this negotiation happening where the president's like, "Okay, what city? We'll give you Atlantic City." And then the leader of Russia is like, "No, we want to pick. We want to pick the city." He's like, "Absolutely not! Like (laughs) Atlantic City or nothing or or end of the world." And he's like, "All right, I'll take Atlantic City." Yeah, and it is kind of like this poker game, almost like this game of like bluffing, not Mm -hmm. bluffing, seeing how far someone will go. Um, By the way, I don't think we mentioned this. The reason the Alabama Angel didn't get the orders to return is their radio system was broken yeah, in the attack. Yeah. So they have no idea that, you know, the whole thing was like made up that like they're going on this suicide mission for nothing and it's going to start World War Three. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's like the, the which I think is like excellent. I love because there's this moment of relief in the war room when they get the code out. Yeah. And they're like, all these planes are responding to it. They're all turning around. We're saved. And they actually think, they assume the Alabama Angel had been shot down Yeah. Uh, at this point because the Russians had confirmed they had hit it. Mm-hmm. And so they don't even think it exists until the Russians are like, hey, there's still one more fucking plane yeah. flying into one of our military bases. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the movie, of course, they managed to drop the bomb yeah. uh, against all odds. And 
In the book, it's different, though, where they manage to open the bomb doors and hit the right switches. And at this point, they know they're they're all dead. They're all dead. Like the bomb is going to explode in like 40 seconds. They know which Mm -hmm. isn't enough time to escape the blast. Um, But they're still flying. And the pot, the, the captain the pilot dies. dies. He, he died like two seconds before he even hit the switch. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they crash into some trees. The few remaining men are also killed immediately. But what they don't realize is the bomb never dropped because the one bomb door was broken from the impact. Yeah. So the bomb gets hurled out of the plane and hits the ground, breaks partially. But doesn't fully detonate. It partially detonates, but not the impact that it would have had. So it's a small explosion, and not only is it small, but it it's way outside of, like, the city, outside of the base. It's, like, not near anything. So instead of, like, this six-mile-wide yeah. explosion that obliterates, like, you know, the town, the base, you know, thousands or millions of people it's just this kind of localized explosion yeah which in the book they were like negotiating like okay if they don't get shot down or they manage if they manage to blow up your city you can have atlantic city (laughs) that's the deal yeah um so when the city doesn't blow up uh there is this tense moment where they're like the the head of russia is still like i'm still gonna shoot atlantic city and they're like what yeah and he's like nah i'm not gonna shoot atlantic city it is very tense and like the russian ambassador ends up like talking to the russian leader and they're kind of going back and forth and then they finally are able to diffuse the situation and be like okay like we will pay for the damages that were caused to like russia but because no city was destroyed war is completely averted and the book kind of ends with this little bit of optimism Mm -hmm. that they're basically at the point in technology on both sides that it doesn't really make sense for them to fight anymore yeah and that peace is possible for the near future and hopefully for the rest of the future as well yeah yeah it's kind of this like outlook on like you said the future of war technology and it kind of like evening out to the point of like it makes no sense we have them and you have them and nobody's gonna fucking use them yeah uh let's talk about the movie ending the the the, the final ending moments uh the bomb has been dropped yeah and they know that this is gonna trigger the, the doomsday, doomsday device so they're all fucked yeah so they're just sitting in the war room like oh my god like what what do we do now? Like, what's going to happen? And Dr. Strangelove, Dr. Strangelove, my time to shine, (laughs) steps up figuratively uh, (laughs) to give his vision for the future of America. Yes. Which is that uh, a select group of men uh, and a lot of women go into a lot of young, sexy, women, young, sexy women, virile women, uh, go into mine shafts out of the uh, nuclear fallout where they will uh, not only survive for 100 years while the nuclear fallout occurs, but then also repopulate yes. while they're down there. Yes. The men having to put in extra hours. Yes. <laughs> and uh, 10 women to every man is what they say. Yes, which get, gets... Uh, gets everybody hard. Turn... Tur- <laughs> <laughs> Everybody yes. in the war room is super All hard. of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Dr. Strangelove, can we talk about just for a minute? We have to. We've put him off until now. I know. Um, He is a Russian, or not a Russian, I'm sorry, a German scientist that has clearly defected to America after World War II. And this is actually like real, lots of Germans. Oh, yeah. Nazis. They were like, hey, just come over to America and like teach us your shit and like this will be fine. Um, Sure. This is like the basis of Captain America- Civil War, or not Civil War. Uh, first of, or First Avenger? No, the second one. Oh, 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 Winter, Winter, Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier, yes. Yeah, where like all of these secret Nazis, like plot secret Nazi yeah. plots in America. <laughs> and America's like, oh no, it's fine. Like bring us all the Nazis. As long as they can give us advice on how to like destroy shit, we don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and Peter Sellers in this role is so fucking funny. He's so good. Like his accent, his weird mannerisms. Uh, and of course his, his uncontrollable uh, right hand, which frequently bursts out into Nazi salutes. Yes. It's like his one hand didn't get the memo that he doesn't serve <laughs> Hitler anymore. <laughs> but you know what? The the salutes are funny, but it's like the smaller moments yeah. between that for me really, really get me. Like just trying to get the arm to move. <laughs> like like the arm starts kind of trying to like roll the wheelchair <laughs> and he's like just tw- struggling with twisting it. Twisting in the wheelchair, trying to control it. At one he- time it, it starts to choke him. <laughs> it's like so funny because he's like trying to like play it off as if it's not happening. Yeah. Uh, there is one moment I went back on YouTube and watched this scene where, and I'd read about this where I think it's when the arm is rolling the wheelchair and he starts hitting the arm. The guy playing the Russian ambassador clearly like his face just kind of like, like laughing twists up into like laughter. <laughs> it, honestly, though, like given how ridiculous the performance is, like the fact that there's 20 dudes standing in the background, keeping a straight face the whole time. It is impressive. It's remarkable, but it's funny, though, because as Dr. Strangelove is envisioning this scenario where they can like survive Basically, they can have this eugenics plot <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for like shaping the rest of the world. It gets him so excited that like he can't help his Nazi arm. He keeps <laughs> calling the president uh, Mein Fuhrer. Mein Fuhrer. <laughs> um, and he ends up walking. <laughs> yeah. He for- takes a couple steps because he's he's like so pumped about this plot. He's like, this is my my Nazi heart is so happy. <laughs> Well, and also the idea of like him, like, oh, if I'm going to be down in a bunker with 10 women, I better be able to walk, essentially. (laughs) Uh, Also, there's this great other aspect going on, too, where uh, Turgeson starts complaining, like, well, what about the Soviets? Like, they're going to go into their mind shaft shaft, and they're going to have like the warheads and we're going to have to be ahead of them when they come out. And as he's complaining about the Russians still in this situation, the Russian ambassador sneaks off with his secret camera yeah. and starts taking photos of the big the board big board and just the idea that like even in it's the face of armageddon it will continue and won't stop uh then we get once um uh dr strangelove takes his uh first two steps first steps uh it immediately smash cuts to the nuclear explosions yeah going off and which, I mean, I guess are supposed to be the ones in Russia, right? Yeah. It almost makes it seem like they were bombed. Yeah, it, it's... 
I think this is like footage of actual like test bombs. Yes. So they're working with what they have. But like, I think we're meant to assume that this is the doomsday device going off. But it really just looks like people are being bombed. The way it smash cuts to the explosion makes it seem like they were bombed in that moment, which I think is a little confusing. Um, But I do love the music uh playing it's this love song we'll meet again mm-hmm. which is just like once again so perfect this romantic angle of the americans and the russians yeah. and we'll meet again even after like all this nuclear fallout all we this can't shit fucking help ourselves yeah it's like we'll just be right back at it like literally no matter what mm-hmm. i think it's like very well done like this the musical choice with the nuclear blast yeah i do just I don't love the abruptness of the cut to the nuclear blast. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a story behind that. Apparently, they had filmed and were going to have the ending be this pie fight. Yeah. Which sounds crazy, but honestly, I really think it could have worked. It's hard to say. It is hard to say without actually having seen it. Because, like, it makes sense the way the ambassador walks away to take the photos. Yeah. He's walking towards the food. Mm-hmm. And I imagine someone probably sees him taking the photos and, like, approaches. And because the food is there, that's probably how the pie fight occurs. Like, it yeah. really feels like they're setting that up intentionally. Apparently, I've heard two different stories. One is that the studio because this is very shortly after JFK was assassinated, Mm -hmm. they didn't want the visual of a president, even a fictional president of the United States, being, like, struck in the face by a pie Mm. or being, like, attacked in any kind of a humorous way. Yeah. Um, I've heard other people say that, no, Kubrick just didn't think the tone fit right with what was everything else that had happened in the film. Like, it was, like, a step too far into farce to, like, really work. Um, so I don't know what the, what the truth is, but like, it was really that removal of the pie fight that led to the way that ending was cut with Mm -hmm. the nuclear blasts. Yeah. Again, I can't say without seeing it. I almost feel like I might agree that the pie fight might be too far in in like the ridiculous territory because I feel like the movie really rides the line a lot. Like it's not an overt comedy. Like it is very satirical and a lot of the parts feel serious, but there's just this comedy edge to them. Um, So yeah, I don't know if it would be too much for that. It's hard to say. And I mean, like, I think ultimately, I think, the first time you see it, that ending is very like, whoa, what? Yeah. Um, but like, since this was the second time I'd seen it and I was prepared for it, it sat much better with me this time. Like, I still think it doesn't quite work, but I'm like, I I think it works well enough as it is. Like, I get it. So, yeah, so that's that's the end of um, of both versions of the yeah. story of Red Alert and Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop <laughs> Worrying and Love the Bomb. <laughs> So which one's better? So I'm, you know, I really liked Red Alert a lot more than I thought I would, given all the technical war (laughs) stuff going on. Um, It was a pretty short book, which I appreciate. I always appreciate that. Yeah. And for as absurd as the like for as absurd as it is so absurd in a way that like the adaptation became a satire, I think the book really does work pretty well as a thriller. Oh, yeah. As, like, this political, um, like, 
horror situation that like is very engaging. Yeah. Um, but that all being said, I do think Dr. Strangelove is just like kind of a special movie. In, it really is. In what it manages to do, the the kind of humor, what it's touching on. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just a really, really excellent movie, I think. So you're saying the movie. Yeah, I know it's a really it's a really hot opinion to think that Dr. Strangelove is a good movie. I know I'm ruffling some you're feathers. So controversial. I know I am. Uh, but yeah, no, it's just it's really it's really excellent. I think I agree with you. I think I'm going to have to say the movie. I think the book is good and it was better than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. But I think the movie really like kind of takes everything that the book had going on and just pushes it farther. Yeah. Because from taking it to seriousness to irony, I think it's exposing the ridiculousness in our own world um, and showing us how ridiculous like the military is, the government is, this whole Cold War situation is. And it's just really highlighting that so strongly. And I think it is more resonant because of it. Yeah. A good satire, I think, is oftentimes so much more effective yeah. than a serious film. Like, oh, yeah. first of all, you piss people off way yes, more with it. Which is great. And I think that ultimately exposes even more because like, you know, laughing at people is just like such an effective way of like. Showing what they really are. Yeah. Really showing the faults with someone with an ideology, with like a system mm-hmm. of government. Uh, I, I think it's like one of the most effective when done right yes it's one of the most effective forms of storytelling yeah and i think kubrick considering he did not ever make a comedy again yeah or before this like the fact that he did it so well i know um is is really shocking and i mean i'm i i have not gone through all of kubrick's filmography i haven't seen certain movies like barry Lyndon or all of eyes wide shut um I am mixed on him. I'm mixed on him. Um, certainly for movie to movie. Uh, you'll know that if you've listened to her, the shining episode. <laughs> uh, so I want to say this is my favorite movie by him. I think probably. Yeah. I, I think it's like, it manages to be incredibly smart, um, with everything it does. But I think the humor is like a really good edge to what, Kubrick does well in his other movies and it has these sexual like allegories and metaphors without feeling um exploitive yeah which I think is like a clockwork orange maybe maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I'm just throwing that out there just throwing that out there so it's movie for both of us yeah um and I just want to say before we wrap up our discussion and read our patron Tassie's thoughts um there's this wild article that i read that was basically talking about how everything detailed in red alert the book and then subsequently in dr strangelove that happens this whole plan r scenario like this nuclear thing literally was possible the whole time yeah even though the movie is like this couldn't happen yeah yeah like literally the this like flaw in the system was there the whole time this could have happened at any moment if like a general went rogue Mm -hmm. and that actually this book was like passed around to like military personnel and was like (laughs) hey maybe we should fix this and also ian uh, i'm going to share this article on our patreon please everyone read it maybe we'll put it on social media too literally 
they were like, maybe we should put like some locks on some of the missiles and like put different codes. And like the Air Force was so mad about it because they're like, oh, we want the ability to be able to like set them off at any point without needing all these special codes. They set the codes to eight zeros, Ian. <laughs> eight zeros. The Air Force is the originator of setting your locks to zeros. <laughs> zero, 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 zero. Yeah. Zero, 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 zero. Yes. Which is That sets like, off the bomb. At least, like, do eight nines. Do anything like, else. Like, if you were going to go numerically in order trying to, like, figure out the code, that would be the first one you try. Exactly. <laughs> would be eight zeros. And the next one would be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just, like, read this article. It really exposes how possible this whole scenario was for the United States like at any moment. I'm so glad that this never happened, but just kind of showing the ridiculousness of the military and this whole idea of like this, you know, these missiles being able to go off at any point yeah. time. And I mean, this story really both versions just really highlight that like, yeah, all these systems are in place to like prevent uh any one individual from like overtaking uh, you know, command or anything like that. But like, ultimately, everything is open to human error. Absolutely. And like, and human there's incompetence. a lot of human error. Oh, yeah. Incompetence, uh, negligence, just like these systems, like we rely on them. And like, they're not great. They're not great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm just going to read Tassie's thoughts. Um, so Tassie says, as far as my personal thoughts, I was surprised by how much the book and movie resembled, even with a bit of the gallows humor infused into the book. It's something we do in medicine to get through the day. So I suppose it's not impossible that those in the military and politics do so as well. I guess I hadn't realized that Kubrick's films were nearly all adaptations. The work is so visionary and often so different from the source material that his films don't tend to sit in my mind as adaptations. I can't think of any other director like him which might be a good thing considering how he was said to have been on set and in working relationships. I actually ordered a book called Stanley Kubrick and the Art of Adaptation by Greg Jenkins to dive into next. This was Kubrick's only comedy, and he didn't set out to make one. Is it a result of his view of humanity or of a market that was saturated with stone-cold warnings about the effect of nuclear war? Whatever the reasons, I'm so happy it's a comedy and delighted that Peter Sellers was in it. And she goes on to say, thank you so much for doing this. Your podcast continues to be a bright spot for me. So thank Aww, you, Tassie. Yeah. Um, loved hearing your thoughts on this adaptation. And again, thank you for suggesting it. Um, we get the best suggestions from our we patrons do. for episodes. Um, we probably wouldn't have picked this on our own, but this ended up being so great to talk about. And this has happened a couple times where like, you know, there's a really famous movie and it's like Elsa, there's a book. And I always imagine like, OK, the book probably sucks. And like ever because everyone forgot about it, like yeah. no one knows it was based on a book. So it's probably not that good. But I feel like in every instance we've been like surprised again and again by like the book it's based on being like genuinely good. Except Jaws. Except Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Except for Jaws. All right, let's do our lightning round. Lightning. So first up for lightning round, I just want to read a little bit from the book. Um, some of the phrasing struck me as kind of like stupidly dramatic or like out of the blue weird. So there's a scene where the captain of the plane is imagining like what Seattle, his hometown looks like now because that he thinks America has been attacked. So this is what he's thinking. How did Seattle look now? 
high shattered buildings poking a few pharaoh concrete fingers at a sky loaded with strontium dust, tarmac of roads, stone and wood of houses, bone and sinew of human flesh fused into a smooth, dead amalgam, glowing black hair and tall, graceful body, brain and voice and generous, loving heart charred into black nothing. (laughs) And then later when they're sending out um, a couple of their bombs to strike at the missiles... Is described as two rockets went into the self immolation, which was their destined end. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems so like all these words that they're using. Yeah. Know. Yeah. That one struck you. I remember you reading that to me. <laughs> um, speaking of the book. Uh, so we've had to been, be buying our books recently since the libraries are still closed. And we bought that one um, off a website tied to a local um uh, bookshop and that copy of the book is um it's really remarkable how shitty it is it's the most janky ass book that i've ever seen uh yes yeah. so first of all it's got like this terrible stock image on the cover that is clearly like the modern day and also really low res and has nothing to do with like the story of like a modern city like under a rocket fire with helicopters and there's like a random kid in a hoodie like in the <laughs> foreground um, the typography is terrible. You open it up. It's that same image, actually lower resolution. <laughs> and the title now in a script font. Yeah. Which is also low res. You can see the pixelation on it. There is no publication information. No publication information at all. Um, just very like stock type, like just like Helvetica on the back. It looks like it was self-published. I'm absolutely positive. There is a website on here called Lulu.com, which is like a self-publishing website. I looked into this, okay? I tried to figure out where this fucking book came (laughs) from because the biggest thing is there are no page numbers on it. No page numbers. And the type on the inside is, like, weirdly large. I actually... The the page number thing maybe, like, refutes this idea. I actually wondered if these were, like, scans Mm. of the real book interior pages because, like, it's kind of got a shitty resolution on the type and it's, like too large and kind of weird it's like i wondered if these were like scans of the real book pages i I don't don't, i don't know but it's terrible i don't know where this book came from (laughs) it's shockingly bad the page number thing especially was annoying for us yeah we couldn't write anything down if we wanted a quote or something yeah uh so next up for lightning round was something actually that tassie mentioned to us when she first suggested this adaptation which is that there was another book that came out shortly after red alert called failsafe um and it actually kind of had a lot of similarities to red alert and the author was kind of challenging this book and being like, hey, they kind of ripped off my idea. Um, But then there was a movie adaptation coming out of Failsafe, and Kubrick actually um, instigated legal action to try to delay the release of this film because he didn't want something coming out that with this of on a similar topic close to when his movie came out because he thought it would, you know, deter from his movie. So they basically successfully delayed this movie from coming out until yeah. like eight or nine months after uh, Doctor Strange Love. So they succeeded. Can you imagine if Failsafe came out first? Yeah. Everyone would have forgotten about Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> no. Yeah, and it was more of like a straight drama. So <laughs> we'd all be sitting here talking about Failsafe right now <laughs> instead of Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> um, 
Oh, so uh, final uh, lightning round. Slim Pickens, who plays uh, Kong, um, the pilot and captain of the plane, uh, was cast. So this was the role that uh, Peter Sellers was offered as like the fourth role he'd play that he didn't want. They apparently offered it to John Wayne, who like (laughs) didn't even get back to them. And so they settled on um, Slim Pickens, who was actually very pretty unknown at this point. And this movie actually like really launched his career, kind of skyrocketed it. And but they told him that it was just like a straight drama. Yeah. So he played it like a drama. Yeah. Just he played it straight the entire time, like on and off camera. And like, I've what did they tell him when they got him to ride the I nuclear warhead? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe at that point they told him. I have no idea. Well, and also he like his character is just him. Yeah, yes. People thought he was, like, doing an accent or, like, putting on a voice. Yeah. But apparently that's just, like, the way he talks all the time. Yeah. (laughs) So that's it for Lightning Round, and that wraps up our episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was such a fun one to talk about. I'm so glad we got to do it, especially for an older, more classic film. And a book that's talking about, you know, uh, the Cold War, which we haven't really discussed at all on our podcast and you know it being a patron request which is always really fun for us to do so thanks again to tassie for suggesting it all our patrons get priority on episode suggestions so if you'd like to become a patron and to support us you can find us on patreon um we have a really great community of people over there and it just means a lot to know that people you know support us and like just to hear from you all. I love hearing everybody's like perspective on oh, yeah. different adaptations. It's so fun. Yeah, just hearing people's thoughts and uh, feelings about our episodes or other uh, books or movies we should cover in the future. Uh, you can also reach out to us at CoverToCreditsPod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, which I know many of you are, uh, giving us a uh, good star rating is hugely helpful. Just clicking that five stars on the podcast as a mm-hmm. whole um, really helps our numbers. And I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being there. Yes. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.